Well, you guys know your history pretty well. Uh, most of you, I presume. Anthropologists tell us that man is universally religious. Um, at every time, at every place in the world, man has shown this inclination to worship. There seems to be this visceral, visceral drive within man. It seems as if it's coded in our DNA. We must worship something. And if you know your history, you know that people have worshipped everything from dung beetles to mice to cows to, cows, to, to, to man himself to Satan. Uh, to Jesus Christ. And if you've studied various religions, including pseudo-Christianity, you can readily see that religion is always easier than actually knowing and loving and obeying Jesus Christ. One reason men love religion is that it's really pretty easy. You just show up every once in a while and do some religious stuff and the thinking is that because I do some religious stuff, of course God is pleased that I do religious stuff. But those of us who've read our Bibles, we realize that being a Christian is far more than religion. In fact, it eclipses religion. In fact, as I said last week, religion is a stench in the nostrils of God. Religion is man's attempt to make himself acceptable to God. And we know if we've read our Bibles that that's impossible. That can't happen. God is, as we talked about last week, our, our problem is God is holy and we're not and we have no hope of ever being holy. Of course, man-made religion, including pseudo-Christianity, um, yeah, that's the lie. That some religious activity will make you presentable and acceptable before... God, we know what Jesus says about true biblical Christianity. He says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him do some religious things. Right? Is that what Jesus said? Seems like it went... Oh, no, it was different. Just a minute. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16. And I want to make this clear. I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. We don't have to become disciples to be saved. We don't work our way into salvation. That's never what I'm saying in this pulpit. I know some pseudo-Christian uh, denominations will preach that, but we certainly don't preach it here. The Bible does not teach it. We don't have to become disciples to be saved. We have to become disciples because, someone tell me, we are saved. We become disciples because we are saved. God has saved us and, yeah, we got to go with Jesus. Yeah, try to stop me. <laughs> Just try to stop me from going with Jesus and obeying Jesus and loving Jesus. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want, guess what? What does God want? You. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. Half measures are no good. Lewis goes on to say, there is no reasoning with God. Religion's not going to get it done with God. It's just not going to get it done with God. 
He either wants all of you or He'll have none of you. This is how Christianity has always worked uh, from the first century on. Jesus doesn't negotiate the terms of our surrender to His Lordship. Jesus says, follow Me and there are no half measures. <laughs> there's, there's no you know, gray, warm, fuzzy, religious middle place to be with Christ. You're either on His heels as His disciple or you're a pretender. That's just really how the Bible speaks about it. Beloved, the only reasonable response to what we talked about the last two weeks, this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the only reasonable response to this radical love and radical grace of God is a, a life of radical faith and radical obedience. And that's really, that's really what God has called the Christian to. Yeah, religion's a lot easier. I just show up every once in a while and I do some things and then I leave. But that's really... I don't have time to do a proper introduction of Hebrews, but this is really in part what the book is, is all about. Um, it was a lot easier for the Jew to stay in Judaism. The Messiah has come, but it's just a lot easier to stay in Judaism. Certainly there's an application here for those of us who have been caught up in pseudo-Christianity. Uh, there's an application for us to, to come out of pseudo-Christianity. And you know, come to a biblical Christianity. So what I want to say to you is, this is the letter to the Hebrews. I don't know how, how the title reads in your Bible. In my Bible it says, the letter to the Hebrews. Obviously, God is speaking to all the church, Jew and Gentile. But there's a significance here for the Jew that may be lost on many Gentiles, the ritualism and religious works of the Old Covenant of Judaism were just a lot easier than following this divisive and controversial God-man called Jesus. It was just simpler to stay in the old system for many. As it is for many who are caught up in pseudo-Christianity, it's just easier to do brain-dead, heart-dead religion than to obey Jesus Christ full out, Right? So, a first century Jew had a huge vested interest in opting for the Old Covenant. Because if he went with Jesus, what happened? Someone tell me from the first, what, did, what happened to the first century Jew when he left uh, Judaism to follow Christ? He lost everything. You know, it doesn't cost us much, most of us. It hasn't really cost us very much at all. We tend to, most of us tend to come from Christian cultures, or at least cultures that tolerate Christianity. But a Jew coming out of Judaism, he lost everything. He was unsynagogue. He was put out. And then his friends and family would ostracize him, ignore him. The persecution was intense. Again, obviously the Holy Spirit intends for the book of Hebrews to exhort and edify the whole church, but there's little debate that this book has a particular interest to the Jew. God is calling the Hebrews to come out of Judaism. That is part of what this book is about. He's calling the Jew to see that Jesus Christ fulfills all the prophecies, all the symbols, all the types, all the pictures, 
He fulfills the meaning of the priesthood, the meaning of the temple, the meaning of the sacrificial system. Jesus Christ is Messiah. Messiah has come. Leave your Judaism. Leave your now dead religion. That is part of the call of the book of Hebrews. God is saying as clearly as He can to the Hebrew, it's time to graduate from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Jesus is better. <laughs> you guys, if you've read the book, you know. Jesus, is, He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the temple. He's better than the blood of bulls and goats. Leave your Judaism. And I say to, to uh, uh, Gentiles, leave your pseudo-Christianity. Leave your heart dead, brain dead, Christian religion. And go with Jesus. Full stop. Full bore. No rationalizations. No half measures. With that brief introduction, we're going to take a look at uh, Hebrews chapter 6 tonight. And I told you earlier why I'm preaching it. Uh, I've had three questions on this text in the last some months or so. I don't remember exactly the number. And the title of my sermon, which I don't normally tell you, the title of my sermon I stole from Matthew Mead, who is a 17th century theologian and pastor. The title of the sermon is The Almost Christian Discovered. It's a great little book. I don't even know if it's still in print. It may be on the internet. You could read it for yourself if you like. Don't you love the title? The Almost Christian. The Almost Christian. I think that's the perfect title for Hebrews Chapter 6. As you know, as I said earlier, there are some who teach that Hebrews 6 is actually saying that someone can genuinely be a Christian, born again, saved, justified, in the process of sanctification. He can be there and then, uh-oh, lose it all. Well, I acknowledge that Hebrews 6 is a difficult text. I acknowledge that that is true. But... There are very good reasons in the text, but not simply in the text, but in the Bible at large, the Bible as a whole, to refute that kind of teaching. The text doesn't actually say that someone who is saved has lost their salvation. Granted, the, the language is a challenge. But you almost have to bring that presupposition to the text to actually settle on that interpretation. And... As you hear me say all the time, the Bible interprets the Bible. What does God say elsewhere about salvation that helps us shed light on Hebrews chapter 6? Is it possible for someone to be unborn again? <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous. But is it possible? Is it possible to be born again of God and then to be unborn again of God? Is it possible? I think this is part of what we need to talk about tonight because this is, these are the questions that are traditionally raised as we look at Hebrews chapter 6. And I don't know if there's a more important question for any of us. Listen, I want you to know you're a Christian. You know why God wants you to know you're a Christian? You, you, you want to know why God wants you to be assured that you're a Christian? So you'll go live like one. He doesn't want you overly occupied being concerned, now, we all have seasons. We, have, we may have seasons where we're, 
we're not really sure if we are or not. And I, I tell when people come to me and they say, Jim, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I don't see the evidences in my life. Uh, you know, and I always send them to 1 John. Go read 1 John. If you look like 1 John, you're a Christian. So in this church, we don't give easy assurance. And people ask me, you know, they come to me and they say, well, Jim, am I a Christian? I say, I have no idea. Are you? Don't ask me. Ask God. I'm not qualified to answer that question. I am not qual I can't see your heart. I don't know what's going on in there. I know what you do on the outside. I don't know what's going on in there. Only God knows what's going on in there. You may have just done some religious activity, for all I know. So, those of you who are here, the small group that we have, don't ask me if I think you're a Christian. I'm not going to tell you because I don't know. You need to, you need to work that out with, with God. So, as chapter 5 closes, the Holy Spirit is exhorting all to move on to maturity. If you see there in chapter 5, verse 14, um, not merely knowing the truth. There in verse 14 it says practicing the truth. It's true of all in the church, both Jew and Gentile. We are all called to spiritual maturity. That's what the, the, the discussion is about as we get into chapter 6. I like what it says here. And for the Jew, for the Jew, let me just say it this way. There's, there's another layer of meaning here for the Hebrew, when it talks about the elementary principles of the oracles of God in verse 12. That's simply the law of God. The Jew knew the law of God. And it made me think of Galatians 3.24. Therefore the law has become what? Our blank to lead us to Christ. Anybody know? The law becomes what? The law becomes our tutor. To drive us to Jesus. I remember when we were in Doha one time and uh, we went to a mosque and the guy was taking us through the mosque and he was a former Christian, had converted to, well, you know, professed Christian, had converted to Islam. And uh, he's saying, man, I, I can't keep the law. I couldn't keep the law. And Karen goes, that's right. <laughs> I don't think she was supposed to say that in the mosque. That's right, you can't keep the law. That's what Jesus is about. He kept the law. You can't be holy. That's what the law shows us. It's our tutor that shows us we must have a Savior. We can't do it ourselves. Religion's not going to get it done for us. I don't care how many cool robes we have and pointed hats we wear. It's not going to get it done for us. It's not going to get it done for us, beloved. So we have a clear exhortation to move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. To move from the elementary things of Judaism onto maturity knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. The, the writer is saying, stop being babes and move on and become a disciple of Jesus. Verses 1-3, through three, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Verse 3, and this we shall do if God permits. You, if you've been around very long, you know what I tell you. God's always moving. 
If you stayed stationary in your Christianity, in your spiritual growth for any length of time, Jesus is gone. He's way out there. God expects His people to stay on His heels. So Jesus is always moving. He's always taking us to a new place of faith. I tell you this all the time. Do you know why He's taking you to a new place of faith? There's, there's several good answers to that. The one I'm thinking, it pleases God. What is it that pleases God? Hebrews 11.6. Faith. So He's always going to drive you to faith. Let me ask you, are you in your Christianity... Are you going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into faith as you use your gifts in the church, as you give your money, as you do ministry, as you witness, as you love your spouse, as you raise your kids? Are you going deeper and deeper or are you stagnant? Beloved, don't, this, this is one of the admonitions of this text. Do not become stagnant in Christ. We are not to become stagnant in Christ. I like how Paul says it to the Colossians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Listen to Paul. Paul says, We've not ceased to pray for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let me ask you, are you walking in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ? That's what he expects from his disciples. Yes, this exhortation in Hebrews 6.1 is applicable to everyone in the church regarding maturity, but there are clues here that show us that there's an emphasis here for the Hebrew, for the Jew. The Holy Spirit says, leave the elementary teachings about the Messiah. He has come. His name is Jesus. Stop looking for Him. He has come. The Greek word translated here, leaving the elementary principles or the elementary teaching about the Christ there in verse 1, um, it, it connotes a separation and a detachment. I think that's a, a pointer again to the Hebrew it would seem that the Gentile believer would not need to separate himself from elementary teachings about Christ, but would need to build on them. In my view, this language is a clear inference for the Jew to, to move on from the rudimentary teachings of Judaism regarding Jesus. Also, in verse 1, we see the phrase, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Again, verse... One, of course, this has application to the Gentile who has previously been caught up in some form of works-driven pseudo-Christianity such as Catholicism or some legalistic Protestantism. But it also is talking to the Jew here about leaving the now-dead works of Judaism. All of these religious activities and teachings listed in verse 1 and 2 can specifically uh, relate to the Old Covenant. And so God is calling the Jew out. He's calling all of us out of the, 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 the mindset that we can be saved by religion. That's part of what's here in this text. Did you notice verse 3? I love verse 3. 
He says, we shall move on if God permits. I think God's saying at least two things here that I'd like to share with you. The writer says, we will go on because all believers do go on. The true believer goes on, right? He goes on with Jesus. He never sits in his spiritual recliner and gets lazy. That's not what real Christians do. Pseudo-Christians do that. Church members do that. But disciples don't do that. So he's saying, we will go on. And then he says, secondly, salvation and sanctification are the sovereign work of God. Listen to me. The writer says, we will go on as God allows in His sovereign providence. As God allows the time for me to grow and, and mature and, and be sanctified. We will go on. Secondly, we will go on as God allows in His sovereign enablement. Beloved, I think one reason I hold the view that this, this text is not preaching that a, a true Christian can lose their salvation is because right here in verse 3 is a very, very small glimpse of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of His people, which is everywhere in Scripture. The Bible interprets the Bible. I like how Jesus talks about it. Now, he talks about this in relation to salvation. John 6, Jesus says, No man comes to Me unless the Father draw him. That's verse 44 of John 6. And Jesus said in the same chapter, No man can come to Me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Verse 65. And I love how Paul talked about this in relation to sanctification in Philippians. He who has become a good work in you Pardon me. He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 6. And he also says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 13. Ultimately, real Christians don't lose their salvation because their salvation is the work of God. It is the work of God. This is the constant refrain of the Bible. God saves His people. It's God initiated. It's God wrought. It's God purchased. God did it. And I think to speak otherwise is a backhanded slight not only against the Word of God, but against God Himself. That's just my opinion. It feels that way to me. Let me just read this text. You guys, maybe you'll understand my thinking. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 28-30, God has chosen the despised thing, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ. Did you hear it? It's not by your doing. God says it's by His doing. It's by His doing that you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let Him who boasts boast about all His religion and religious, religious activity and keeping Himself holy to be approved of God. Right? No. What do we boast in? The Lord. 
Beloved, do the exegetical math here. Do the exegetical math here. If being saved is wholly up to you, you have something to boast about. If staying saved is wholly up to you, you have something to boast about. You'll stand before the judgment seat of God with your chest out. I did it. I did it. God says, no man will boast before me. No man. No man will boast before me. There's a lot of boasting in self-righteousness and pseudo-Christianity, but there is no boasting in biblical Christianity except in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned Matthew Mead to you a few moments ago, a 17th century pastor. This is a quote from his book. I want you to hear it. I love this quote. No man can... Uh, no man ever kept out of was ever kept out of heaven for his confess his confessed badness. I, I'm having a trouble reading my writing. Okay. No man was ever kept out of heaven for his confessed badness. I love this follow-up line. Though many will be kept out of heaven for their supposed goodness. You know we've talked about this before. The man who might be inclined to have his chest out before God. When he gets a glimpse of God, (laughs) there's no more chest out before God. God shuts every mouth. The reigning, majestic glory of God will shut every mouth. Verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So here we are. This is the heart of the matter. These guys sound like they were true believers, don't they? They sound like they were true believers. And verse 6 says they have fallen away. But did you notice the one thing there that I think we, I might want to mention before I forget? Is if you believe this way, and some denominations do, I actually think there's one denomination, I'm not going to name it. It's my understanding that they believe you can come and go. And you can be saved and then you're not saved. But then you can come back and be saved, but maybe you won't be saved again. But then you can come back and be saved, but not be saved. This text actually speaks against that. If you actually believe you can lose your salvation, the text says you'll never get it back. That's what the text says. The text is not saying you can lose your salvation, but I just wanted to point that out to you. For those who teach that, they have to, if they have intellectual integrity, they have to acknowledge that there's no way to come back again according to the Word of God. But is the text saying that we've lost our salvation, that a Christian can lose its salvation? Or is it saying something else? Namely, that you can have all of these kinds of experiences listed in verse 4 and verse 5 and never truly have known God. I submit to you, it's the latter and not the former. You can have all of these kinds of experiences and never have known God. That's what the text is saying. You can be the best religious guy on the planet. God's not impressed. You know, it's the Matthew 7 thing, right? Lord, I did all this cool stuff. 
I did all this really cool stuff in your name. And what's Jesus going to say? That's great, man. I love religion. I love people that do religious stuff and think they can be justified before me in their own good works. Now, Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, made me think of Matthew 7. If we look closely at the text, keeping in mind what the Bible as a whole has to say about salvation being the work of God from beginning to end, we will see that this text is not teaching you can have and lose your salvation. One of the most important clues for us here in understanding that we are not talking about someone who has had salvation and then lost it is the fact that there are no terms found in this text the Bible usually associates with conversion. We don't see the normal terms the Bible associates with conversion when it's talking about salvation. You don't see the terms elect or called or chosen or regeneration or justification or sanctification or being born again or being redeemed, etc., etc., etc. You do not find any of these normal terms in this text. Another textual clue that will help us here, I think, to rightly divide the Word of God is the use of the pronoun those in verse 4 and the change of the pronoun you down in verse 9. The Holy Spirit says there are those, verse 4, who seem to fall away. Then to you in verse 9, He calls the beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. So there's the those and the you. We, we definitely have two kinds of professing Christians here. Let me develop that as we go on. So there are the those who are around the visible body of Christ. They're around the church, but they ultimately fall away. It's the you, the beloved, who are actually in the body of Christ. We know what the Bible teaches. There are tares among the wheat. We know it. Don't we know it? Haven't we all experienced it? Some of us, it's been a lot of heartbreak for us to to believe that a loved one or a family member or a friend was a Christian and just watch them walk away. I've seen it. If you've been a Christian very long, you've probably seen it. You've probably seen it too. Pseudo-churches with pseudo-ministers preaching pseudo-gospels have spawned a flood of tares in the church, the so-called church, the visible church, a flood of tears. I dare say if we take the whole of what the world calls Christendom today, including Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism, the vast majority of those calling themselves Christians are merely cultural Christians. They're merely cultural Christians. They've done a religious thing, so they're aligned with that religious group. They've not really given themselves to Christ. They're, they're not really loving Christ and obeying Christ and honoring Christ and following Christ and walking with Christ. As Jesus says in John 17.3, this is eternal life that they may do religious things. No, this is eternal life that they may know. Beloved, that's always the test. 
It doesn't matter how many ordinances you've done or how many religious exercises you've done. Um, none of this really matters. Are you in relationship with God? So I want you to, I'm going I'm to take you through a litany here. So when I use the word those, I want you to think almost Christian. That's the almost Christian. And when I use the word you, I want you to think the beloved, which always refers to the people of God. So did you notice here in this text, the words used in this passage to describe those, not the you, they have been enlightened. This is not a salvation term anywhere in Scripture. They've heard the truth, but guess what? You know this, so did Judas. He was not a Christian. The those, not the you, have tasted the heavenly gift. Again, this is not a salvific term in the Bible. They tasted, but they did not eat, as Jesus says. John 6.56 the, in, the indescribable gift of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9.15 I want to remind you, Judas had done this. And Judas was not a believer. The those, not the you, were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not a salvation term. The text doesn't say that they were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5, or indwelt by the Holy Spirit, John 14.17, or sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. It doesn't say they were anointed, led, baptized, or filled with the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in Scripture do you see this terminology used to speak about someone born of the Spirit. You just don't see it anywhere else. Yes, sometimes this Greek word translated partakers is used in connection with Christians, but not with respect to being regenerated or being born again. So, in the context of Hebrews 6, this phrase seems to mean those who experience the pre-salvation convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but they remain unrepentant. They may still be hanging out around the church like Judas. They're hanging around. And people think they're real. Everybody knew Judas was real. People think they're real. But they're tares, beloved. They're tares among the wheat. Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8 comes to my mind. In addition to... Judas, these are unregenerate church members. Yeah, they did a religious thing. They're on the church roll, but they are not born again and they do not love Christ. There are the those, not the you, who had tasted the good work uh, and powers of the age to come. Again, this is not a salvation term. They had tasted, but they had not eaten, as I mentioned earlier in John 6. As Judas did, who was not saved. Go do a word study if you like. Uh, there in verse 5, the, word, the Greek word translated word, it's not logos. It's rhema. I'll leave that to your own studies. They witnessed the powers of the age to come. Oh, so did Judas! But he was not saved. Of course, all of these phrases have application with Gentiles who were 
flirting or toying with Christianity. But I think uniquely we're also talking about the Jew here. Yes, Christian, quit flirting with pseudo-Christianity. Quit flirting with it. Quit trifling with God. Be serious with God. Come all the way to Jesus. Don't hold anything back. That's really what it always is anyway. And to the Jew, come. Come out of Judaism. And you heard the dire warning. I'll just repeat it. Verse 6, if they have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they have crucified to themselves the Son of God. The almost Christian who hangs around and hangs around and hangs around, whether he's Jew or Gentile, he hangs around, he hangs around, he hangs around, he never gives himself to Jesus and ultimately he leaves. He brings shame on the name of Christ. They've experienced so much that the church has to offer. They have all the revelation. It's like the Jew. They've got all the revelation. They got it all. They, the Messiah has come. But when this is written, I think it's written in 60-something, 68-something. Messiah has come. He's done His work. He's resurrected. And they still don't believe Him. They still won't believe Him. They've rejected all the revelation of God. They are standing with His crucifiers and saying, He is a fake. I'll not give my life to Him. Crucify Him. That's really the point that's being made here. For the Jew who loves his Judaism more than he loves coming to Christ, or for the pseudo-Christian who loves playing church more than he loves being a disciple. It applies to, to both. It's the almost Christians that never are. John MacArthur brought up a good point. I was reading some background reading here. Um, you, know, you know what happens when you get a, a vaccination, right? They actually give you some of the stuff. So you'll build up an immunity. And I, I'll be honest with you, I've been, a, I've been in ministry for, for almost 30 years now, and I've seen this. You know, people hang around, they hang around, they hang around, they hang around. And it, it's like, it, after the newness wears off, they're, they, they're not moved by any of it. And ultimately, they, they drift away. It's, it's like they've been vaccinated, <laughs> in a sense to the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. Go read the parable of the vine and the branches. You guys know this great parable in John 15. It's about the Judas branch. Jesus has just dismissed Judas and Jesus begins to teach. It's about the Judas branch. What, what happens to the branch that does not bear fruit? Someone tell me what happens. God the Father, the vine dresser, He removes it. And what happens to it? It's cast out. And it is burned. John 15, 6. 
Let me say again, verse 6 is not talking about true Christians falling away from true faith. It's talking about pseudo-Christians turning aside from the true faith. Yeah, they liked playing church, but it got too hot. I'm out of here. You know the great, the great parable of the soils. You remember the, the guy that received the Word with joy, right? But when the persecution came, when the hard thing came, what? He fell away. You know, this, is, this shouldn't be a shock to us. I, 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 it's not only in Scripture, but I'm sure that many of us have, have experienced it as well. Well, quickly, let me finish. Verse 7 and 8. And here's another clue, if not the slam, on why this is not talking about a Christian that's lost their salvation. Look at the illustration. Verses 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to, those, uh, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. Verse 8, but, it, it, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. I think this solidifies my view that we're not talking about a Christian who's lost their salvation. If we were talking about that, it, it would seem better to have, in, instead, of, you know, instead of the way the, the, the text reads, it's talking about two fields. One that's fruitful uh, and one that's barren. One that is a fruitful branch, one that is an unfruitful branch. One that is a, a true believer, one that is, is, is a Judas branch. It's not talking about a field, one field that once bore fruit and then became barren. It's talking about two different kinds of fields. It's talking about the pseudo-Christian, the false Christian, and the true. Beloved, that's what this text is about. Verse 9, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Here it comes. Even though... Things accompanying salvation, even though we are speaking this way. Do you see it? He said, verse 4, there are those who live like this, who act like this, but you, beloved, don't. You love God. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name. Don't you love it? in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Do you see the difference between the those and the you? Do you see it? The those are barren. The you, they're the beloved. They're fruitful. They love God's name. They minister to the saints. Do you see the difference? I'll be honest with you. I, I understand why people get confused about this text, but when you, when you get into it and you study it, to me, it is quite clear. Yeah, religion is easier than biblical Christianity. It's why many Jews stay in Judaism. It's why many pseudo-Christians stay in false denominations. But I'm just going to close with three verses. You know, there's so many verses I could go to that reveal biblically that, that 
the assurance of the true believer. Ultimately because salvation is God's work. That's why. That's why. It's God's work. That's why. And I think we need to be careful how we talk about it. If we're not sure, we maybe need to keep our mouth shut. Questions are fine. Oh, you know, honest questions are fine. That's not what I'm talking about. But God has specifically said, no man will boast. Just a couple of verses. John 10. You guys know this great verse. John 10, 26-30. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. I know people hate it when God talks like that. <laughs> That's how He says it. You do, not, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, uh, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. you got two members of the Trinity holding on to you. I love that text. First Peter, we, we, we preached it last year. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1-6. through 6. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, to those who are the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Boom! Man! How do you miss that over and over in Scripture? To a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved for you in heaven. Oh, and protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your salvation is of God and it will be complete because God is holding you. You are protected by the power of God. And then lastly, Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined... Listen to this. <laughs> I'm not sure how you can have intellectual integrity and actually divvy up this next verse. Verse 30 of Romans 8. These who He predestined, He called. These whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He glorified. Beloved, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. You be careful how you talk about Christian salvation. God has put His name on the line here. It's what God does. You be careful. How you talk about it. And as I close, you know we talked about this in the park. Paul said, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God. I may have gone a little long tonight. That's okay. You know, if you struggle with the text, it's what I tell every Bible study group I'm in. Are you struggling with this text? That's good. Keep struggling. 
Keep struggling. Keep your hammer out. You're supposed to be, what did Paul tell Timothy? Be a what? A lazy churchgoer. No. Be a good workman who knows the Bible and who can rightly divide Scripture. Be a Berean. See if these things are true. So I exhort you and I encourage you, if you're a Christian, it's a done deal, man. It's a done deal. If you're playing church with God, you're, you're on dangerous ground. If you're playing church with God, you're on dangerous ground tonight. You're on dangerous ground. There's a dire warning here about trifling and toying with God. So, I'll leave it there. If you have any questions, shoot them off to me. I'll be glad to do the best I can with them. Let's pray together.